Welcome to another episode of No Tears for Black Girls, a true crime podcast with a purpose. Written and produced by award-winning author John Reedberg. I'm your host, Samantha Paul. Let's dive in. It was 1984, and 20-something Deborah Brown met Alton Coleman, an infamous killer and rapist whose violent record had already been well-established. Together, they embarked on a terrifying spree across the Midwest, one fueled by savagery and depravity, perpetrating horrific crimes against African-Americans, adults, children, and even the elderly. The FBI added Coleman to their top 10 most wanted list, but on July 17, 1984, they were tracked down and apprehended. Yet it was too late for the victims of their heinous acts of violence. Determined to seek justice for the victims, authorities formed a multi-state coalition, with Ohio chosen as the first to impose the death penalty. An odd coincidence links these two monsters. Born just five days apart under the sign of Scorpio, Deborah on November 11, 1962, and Alton on November 6, 1955. A shocking study by ZodiacSign.com revealed four Zodiac signs accounted for most of the 485 serial murderers included in their analysis. Pisces, Cancer, Scorpio, and Sagittarius. It's no surprise that Scorpio topped this list. Its major weaknesses include violence, manipulation, and jealousy. Hallmarks of Alton Coleman's story. Born with the unfortunate nickname Pissy because of a tendency to wet his pants, they sent Coleman to prison for robbery at a young age. But when he emerged two years later, his tastes had changed. He now preferred dressing in women's clothing and engaging in rough sexual encounters. Together with his girlfriend, Deborah Denise Brown, they formed one of America's most notorious pairs of spree killers, much like Britain's infamous duo Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Their saga began in the mid-1970s, resulting in a nationwide manhunt across five states and an appalling lack of respect for human life, which shocked even hardened agents from the FBI and local police forces alike. In less than two months, Illinois, Michigan, and Kentucky experienced unfavorable terror until Coleman and Brown were apprehended. They await execution for their heinous crimes. The survivors of Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown's heinous rampage had been plagued with agony in the ensuing years. One young victim had lived a life of fear, vowing never to trust another person or get married, while another had agonized over drug addiction, suicidal attempts, and post-traumatic stress disorder. They robbed the parents of the deceased victim of justice for their daughter, as the couple evaded legal proceedings. Coleman's family fought against his execution, claiming his innocence, while Brown's mother wept in memorial of her child's fate at the hands of Coleman's villainy. The evil unleashed by Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown was unfathomable, yet they escaped judicial retribution. Infuriated prosecutors had no other choice but to watch in terror as Coleman manipulated juries time after time, convincing them of his innocence. The monster that was Alton Coleman grew from a confused childhood, taunted by schoolchildren who dubbed him pissy due to his bedwetting problem. He was born in Waukegan, an Illinois town just north of Chicago, where he suffered ridicule. However, the judicial system failed to recognize his depravity. Family members and law enforcement officials who had encountered Coleman during his teenage years described him as slow to show emotion and felt they alienated him from his peers. Insatiable for gratification, Alton engaged in bisexual behavior, anytime, 
anywhere with anyone. One friend of Coleman's late mother said, he knew he was different, even as a young child. Coleman caught authorities' attention for vandalism in his Waukegan housing project. Little did they know the turmoil ahead, though it is noteworthy that property damage, even arson, is sometimes an indicator of serial murder tendencies. Law enforcement failed to put Coleman away when he appeared in court smooth-talking his way out of trouble, with some even attributing his escape to voodoo magic, making him invincible against prosecution. Waukegan Police Lieutenant Mark Hansen exposed Alton Coleman's true colors in 1984. He crafts a compelling story for the jury, he said. It's enough to make them believe him. He seems like a nice guy, but make no mistake, he's a career criminal. Coleman was adept at beating charges against him, relying on his silver tongue and voodoo god Baron Samedi. But when those tactics failed, witness intimidation took control of the fate of his cases. As Hansen recalled, people were not willing to testify against him due to the sensitive nature of the crimes, sexual abuse of kids and family members. Despite Coleman's sister going to authorities alleging her brother attempted to rape her eight-year-old daughter, her plea for dismissal to the judge three weeks later was met with incredulity. The judge saw right through her fear of Coleman and called her version of events implausible. However, with no witnesses present, his hands were tied and they dropped the charges against Alton Coleman. Before embarking on his Midwestern crime spree, Coleman already had a long rap sheet, including the kidnapping, robbery, and rape of an elderly woman. The courthouse hushed as the judge read out Alton Coleman's sentence. They found him guilty of robbery and served two years in Joliet Penitentiary. But that wasn't the end of his story. Just three months after his release, they arrested him for another alleged rape, only to be acquitted and serve time on a lesser charge. By 1984, Alton was wanted for the knife point rape and murder of a suburban Chicago girl. So with his girlfriend Deborah Brown close by, he went into hiding, kicked off a multi-state crime spree targeting black victims since they provided a safe place to hide. But why did Alton do this? Some authorities blamed his intense hatred of blacks, but those who knew him well called it absurd. Was it instead self-hatred due to his own homosexual tendencies? A family friend suggested this, mentioning his unconventional habits and cross-dressing tendencies. Coleman was a disorganized serial killer. He wouldn't stalk his victims, but used whatever tools he had to hand to kill or incapacitate those nearby, with no ritual to his violence. The charges of aggravated rape and murder that were brought against him, which could have ended in the death penalty, pushed him over the edge into insanity. And on June 5, 1984, he and Deborah Brown moved to Gary, Indiana. On June 18th, two girls, Tamika Turks and her nine-year-old aunt, went missing on their way to buy candy. Later that day, someone discovered the nine-year-old beaten and raped, but Tamika was nowhere to be seen. A day later, her tortured body was discovered in a wooded area having been raped and killed by someone jumping on her chest. Coleman holding her down as Brown covered her nose and mouth while she watched in terror. They made the little girl face a nightmare no child could endure. She endured unimaginable horrors, and once it ended, she bore physical scars, intense headaches, screaming fits, and emotional wounds that would remain unhealed. Two people had all the power, soon becoming public enemy number one. 
Tamika Hilliard's family found themselves in an unbearable situation. Not only had someone robbed them of their beloved, but medical bills piled up, leaving them able to cope. It became too much for grandmother Laverne Turks, who moved away to escape her sorrow. Her grief was so overwhelming that her own daughter attempted suicide after Tamika's death. Meanwhile, Donna Williams had gone missing on the same day Tamika's body was discovered. The search for her brought police from four states together. Williams' car, with Brown's ID card, was discovered abandoned in Detroit, that things started linking back to Tamika's assailants. Two days after Williams' disappearance, one woman had an encounter with the infamous duo that would change everything. She identified Coleman and Brown as her kidnappers and made her escape by crashing into oncoming traffic. That brave act of heroism unraveled a secret that no one wanted to reveal. Coleman and Brown were eluding justice. This deadly duo had bewitched Good Samaritans and conditioned vicious crimes, leaving a trail of destruction across multiple states. Agents from the FBI were hot on their heels, but Coleman and Brown always stayed one step ahead until they traveled to Detroit. It was there that the deadly couple seemed to settle in, wreaking havoc and stirring up an alarming crime wave. They issued a warrant for their arrest due to the kidnapping and robbery of a 28-year-old woman who somehow survived them. The two men also robbed an elderly Dearborn Heights couple and two unsuspecting Detroit men during this time. Coleman and Brown honed their skills as they continued to rob, beat, and steal cars from their victims. But even then, authorities had trouble catching them. Despite the disorganized pattern of murders, there was one thing linked to each crime. Every stolen car would be recovered within 12 hours. So, when agents couldn't locate a 1975 Buick stolen by the pair after they attacked a 55-year-old woman and her companion, it became clear that Coleman and Brown had fled the city. Even after they had left Detroit, evidence of their atrocities began to surface. In an abandoned house near Wayne State University in Detroit, the body of Donna Williams was discovered, decomposed with little evidence as to how long she had stayed captive in the city with her captors. The terrible truth of Donna Williams' unsolved murder forever haunts her family. After authorities sought justice against Coleman and Brown, they did not try the Williams case. Lake County Prosecutor Jack Crawford made the difficult decision that the strongest cases against the two were those that could land them on death row. For Robert and Zenota Williams, their daughter's killers are not the only concern. What happened to Donna? Zenota asked in a retrospective three years later. The murders of elderly Eugene Scott in Indianapolis, Virginia Temple, and her 10-year-old daughter in Toledo, Marlene Waters in Cincinnati, all unsolved and unpunished. From Toledo, they stole Marlene and her husband's car, making their way southbound until they abandoned it in a cornfield near Lexington, Kentucky. Nearby, Williamsburg bore witness to the duo's sinister plot. They kidnapped Olene Carmichael and drove away, leaving her locked in the trunk of their car. An elderly couple in Dayton endured a violent robbery, followed soon after by an armed robbery of another couple. In less than a month, these criminals went from Tamika Turk's murder to Indianapolis, committing felonies almost every other day. The heinous crimes carried out by the pair earned them infamy across the country, propelling Coleman to be named a special addition to the FBI's 10 most wanted list with such notorious company as H. Rap Brown and James Earl Ray. By now, Coleman had few allies left. 
so it came as no surprise when an acquaintance spotted them walking near Evanston, Illinois, alerting authorities who were already keeping watch due to Coleman's associates in the area. Police soon caught up with them at an apartment they had rented prior to fleeing Gary. The authorities were on high alert for the couple, known as desperate criminals. Undercover officers spotted them in a local park, and soon enough, state, local, and federal authorities began to swarm the area. At noon on July 20th, 1984, while they watched an intense pickup game from the bleachers at Mason Park on the west side of Evanston, the cops began to close in. Cool as could be, Coleman began to walk away, but they cut his escape short as plainclothes and uniformed cops confronted him. Dressed in a tattered yellow shirt and sporting a new buzz cut instead of his trademark Jerry Curl do, he complied with their demands and identified himself with two aliases. Brown produced her ID as Denise Johnson. Enough. Neither resorted to their weapons. Coleman had a long knife hidden in his boot while she carried a loaded revolver and surrendered. An awestruck 11-year-old who witnessed the arrest described it. Their capture was quick and easy, looked just like it did on TV. The authorities had been anticipating the return of Coleman and Brown to Evanston for weeks, as neighbors reported hearing rumors of their imminent arrival. That of their close-knit community, who had been waiting to see justice served, matched the jubilant mood of the police only. As Coleman and Brown were arrested, evidence of weariness and exhaustion was apparent. Perhaps they had realized that an end was near. Law enforcement officials considered whether the duo wanted to be apprehended, an idea supported by the lackadaisical fingerprinting at each crime scene, almost as if they were leaving a calling card.it was those very fingerprints that sealed their fate, identifying them as suspects from multiple states. They took Coleman and Brown into custody, bolstering the focus on state and federal authorities to uncover the indictments against them. They set the strictest states to have the primary charge. Capital offenses in Michigan and Wisconsin, where the death penalty is not enforced, would be delayed or not pursued. We want him first, said Lake County DA Fred Foreman. In the Evanston police station, they warned Deborah Brown of her rights under the U.S. Constitution and opted to remain silent, demanding to speak with her lawyer. However, the FBI agent interrogated her, asking questions about her identity, age, birth date, and address, while an Evanston detective inquired about an attack in his jurisdiction for which the two were suspected. When the time came to transfer Brown to federal lockup, she spoke with agents during the route to Chicago. They again counseled her of her rights and declined to sign a waiver, though agreed to continue talking, but could stop whenever she wanted. For two and a half hours, Brown confessed to the crime spree that had terrorized the upper Midwest, but then she asked for an attorney, and any further inquiry ceased. At her trial, her attorney argued that this violated her right to self-incrimination, but to no avail. The confession to federal authorities was allowed into evidence. Brown was found guilty and sentenced to death for the killing of Tamika Turks. Later, Coleman convicted of the same murders and sentenced to die too. In 1991, the governor commuted Brown's sentence saying Coleman had dominated her. She now serves two life sentences in Ohio, while Indiana still holds out hope for a death sentence. The appeals court ruling was a devastating blow for Deborah Brown. They found the confession she had given after requesting an attorney to be valid. But it was her own words, 
whilst being transported to federal custody that left a loophole which could result in her execution. It infuriated criminal defense attorneys, one saying that the Fifth Amendment was being squeezed to death. Brown is on death row in Ohio, uncertain of returning to Indiana for execution. Alton Coleman was also on death row, but he won a minor victory at the U.S. Supreme Court, where they ruled that murder defendants are entitled to adequate legal representation. With this decision of the High Court, Coleman's lawyers filed for relief. They convicted Alton Coleman and his cohort Deborah Brown of heinous crimes, murder, rape, and attempted murder. In separate trials in Indiana, they both received the death penalty. Coleman also receiving an additional 100 years and Brown 40 more for kidnapping and child molesting. Things seemed especially grim for the duo when they received the death penalty for aggravated murders in Ohio as well. During Brown's sentencing phase, she even sent a note that read, I killed the bitch and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. They executed Coleman on April 26, 2002, but they spared Brown from the electric chair because they considered her low IQ scores and nonviolent history prior to meeting Coleman. She remains imprisoned in the Ohio Reformatory for Women under a death sentence in Indiana. The courthouse hushed as the judge read out Alton Coleman's sentence. They found him guilty of robbery and served two years in Joliet Penitentiary. But that wasn't the end of his story. Just three months after his release, they arrested him for another alleged rape, only to be acquitted and serve time on a lesser charge. By 1984, Alton was wanted for the knife point rape and murder of a suburban Chicago girl. So with his girlfriend Deborah Brown close by, he went into hiding, kicked off a multi-state crime spree targeting black victims, since they provided a safe place to hide. But why did Alton do this? Some authorities blamed his intense hatred of blacks, but those who knew him well called it absurd. Was it instead self-hatred due to his own homosexual tendencies? A family friend suggested this, mentioning his unconventional habits and cross-dressing tendencies. Coleman was a disorganized serial killer. He wouldn't stalk his victims, but used whatever tools he had to hand to kill or incapacitate those nearby, with no ritual to his violence. The charges of aggravated rape and murder that were brought against him, which could have ended in the death penalty, pushed him over the edge into insanity, and on June 5, 1984, he and Deborah Brown moved to Gary, Indiana. On June 18, two girls, Tamika Turks and her nine-year-old aunt, went missing on their way to buy candy. Later that day, someone discovered the nine-year-old beaten and raped, but Tamika was nowhere to be seen. A day later, her tortured body was discovered in a wooded area, having been raped and killed by someone jumping on her chest. Coleman holding her down as Brown covered her nose and mouth while she watched in terror. They made the little girl face a nightmare no child could endure. She endured unimaginable horrors, and once it ended, she bore physical scars, intense headaches, screaming fits, and emotional wounds that would remain unhealed. Two people had all the power, soon becoming public enemy number one. Tamika Hilliard's family found themselves in an unbearable situation. Not only had someone robbed them of their beloved, but medical bills piled up, leaving them able to cope. It became too much for grandmother Laverne Turks, who moved away to escape her sorrow. Her grief was so overwhelming that her own daughter attempted suicide after Tamika's death. Meanwhile, 
Donna Williams had gone missing on the same day Tamika's body was discovered. The search for her brought police from four states together. Williams' car, with Brown's ID card, was discovered abandoned in Detroit that things started linking back to Tamika's assailants. Two days after Williams' disappearance, one woman had an encounter with the infamous duo that would change everything. She identified Coleman and Brown as her kidnappers and made her escape by crashing into oncoming traffic. That brave act of heroism unraveled a secret that no one wanted to reveal. Coleman and Brown were eluding justice. This deadly duo had bewitched Good Samaritans in condition vicious crimes, leaving a trail of destruction across multiple states. Agents from the FBI were hot on their heels, but Coleman and Brown always stayed one step ahead until they traveled to Detroit. It was there that the deadly couple seemed to settle in, wreaking havoc and stirring up an alarming crime wave. They issued a warrant for their arrest due to the kidnapping and robbery of a 28-year-old woman who somehow survived them. The two men also robbed an elderly Dearborn Heights couple and two unsuspecting Detroit men during this time. Coleman and Brown honed their skills as they continued to rob, beat, and steal cars from their victims. But even then, authorities had trouble catching them. Despite the disorganized pattern of murders, there was one thing linked to each crime. Every stolen car would be recovered within 12 hours. So when agents couldn't locate a 1975 Buick stolen by the pair after they attacked a 55-year-old woman and her companion, it became clear that Coleman and Brown had fled the city. Even after they had left Detroit, evidence of their atrocities began to surface. In an abandoned house near Wayne State University in Detroit, the body of Donna Williams was discovered. Decomposed with little evidence as to how long she had stayed captive in the city with her captors. The terrible truth of Donna Williams' unsolved murder forever haunts her family. After authorities sought justice against Coleman and Brown, they did not try the Williams case. Lake County Prosecutor Jack Crawford made the difficult decision that the strongest cases against the two were those that could land them on death row. For Robert and Zenota Williams, their daughter's killers are not the only concern. What happened to Donna? Zenota asked in a retrospective three years later. The murders of elderly Eugene Scott in Indianapolis, Virginia Temple and her 10-year-old daughter in Toledo, Marlene Waters in Cincinnati, all unsolved and unpunished. From Toledo, they stole Marlene and her husband's car, making their way southbound until they abandoned it in a cornfield near Lexington, Kentucky. Nearby, Williamsburg bore witness to the duo's sinister plot. They kidnapped Olene Carmichael and drove away, leaving her locked in the trunk of their car. An elderly couple in Dayton endured a violent robbery, followed soon after by an armed robbery of another couple. In less than a month, these criminals went from Tamika Turk's murder to Indianapolis, committing felonies almost every other day. The heinous crimes carried out by the pair earned them infamy across the country propelling Coleman to be named a special addition to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list with such notorious company as H. Rat Brown and James Earl Ray. By now, Coleman had few allies left, so it came as no surprise when an acquaintance spotted them walking near Evanston, Illinois, alerting authorities who were already keeping watch due to Coleman's associates in the area. Police soon caught up with them at an apartment they had rented prior to fleeing Gary. The authorities were on high alert for the couple, known as desperate criminals. Undercover officers spotted them in a local park, and soon enough, 
state, local, and federal authorities began to swarm the area. At noon on July 20th, 1984, while they watched an intense pickup game from the bleachers at Mason Park, on the west side of Evanston, the cops began to close in. Cool as could be, Coleman began to walk away, but they cut his escape short as plainclothes and uniformed cops confronted him. Dressed in a tattered yellow shirt and sporting a new buzz cut instead of his trademark jerry curl, he complied with their demands and identified himself with two aliases. Coleman had a long knife hidden in his boot while she carried a loaded revolver and surrendered. An awestruck 11-year-old who witnessed the arrest described it. Their capture was quick and easy. Looked just like it did on TV. The authorities had been anticipating the return of Coleman and Brown to Evanston for weeks, as neighbors reported hearing rumors of their imminent arrival. That of their close-knit community, who had been waiting to see justice served, matched the jubilant mood of the police only. As Coleman and Brown were arrested, evidence of weariness and exhaustion was apparent. Perhaps they had realized that an end was near. Law enforcement officials considered whether the duo wanted to be apprehended, an idea supported by the lackadaisical fingerprinting at each crime scene. It was those very fingerprints that sealed their fate, identifying them as suspects from multiple states. They took Coleman and Brown into custody, bolstering the focus on state and federal authorities to uncover the indictments against them. They set the strictest states to have the primary charge. Capital offenses in Michigan and Wisconsin, where the death penalty is not enforced, would be delayed or not pursued. We want him first, said Lake County DA Fred Foreman. In the Evanston police station, they warned Deborah Brown of her rights under the U.S. Constitution and opted to remain silent, demanding to speak with her lawyer. However, the FBI agent interrogated her, asking questions about her identity, age, birth date, and address. While an Evanston detective inquired about an attack in his jurisdiction for which the two were suspected. When the time came to transfer Brown to federal lockup, she spoke with agents during the route to Chicago. They again counseled her of her rights and declined to sign a waiver, though agreed to continue talking, but could stop whenever she wanted. For two and a half hours, Brown confessed to the crime spree that had terrorized the upper Midwest. But then she asked for an attorney, and any further inquiry ceased. At her trial, her attorney argued that this violated her right to self-incrimination, but to no avail. The confession to federal authorities was allowed into evidence. Brown was found guilty and sentenced to death for the killing of Tamika Turks. Later, Coleman convicted of the same murders and sentenced to die too. In 1991, the governor commuted Brown's sentence, saying Coleman had dominated her. She now serves two life sentences in Ohio, while Indiana still holds out hope for a death sentence. The appeals court ruling was a devastating blow for Deborah Brown. They found the confession she had given after requesting an attorney to be valid. But it was her own words, whilst being transported to federal custody, that left a loophole which could result in her execution. It infuriated criminal defense attorneys, one saying that the Fifth Amendment was being squeezed to death. Brown is on death row in Ohio, uncertain of returning to Indiana for execution. Alton Coleman was also on death row, but he won a minor victory at the U.S. Supreme Court, where they ruled that murder defendants are entitled to adequate legal representation. With this decision of the High Court, Coleman's lawyers filed for relief. 
They convicted Alton Coleman and his cohort Deborah Brown of heinous crimes, murder, rape, and attempted murder. In separate trials in Indiana, they both received the death penalty, Coleman also receiving an additional 100 years and Brown 40 more for kidnapping and child molesting. Things seemed especially grim for the duo when they received the death penalty for aggravated murders in Ohio as well. During Brown's sentencing phase, she even sent a note that read, I killed the bitch and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. They executed Coleman on April 26, 2002, but they spared Brown from the electric chair because they considered her low IQ scores and nonviolent history prior to meeting Coleman. She remains imprisoned in the Ohio Reformatory for Women under a death sentence in Indiana. Coleman spent his last hours visiting with spiritual advisors and his attorneys until the 8.45 cutoff time. At which time he will be offered a shower and then we will prepare him for the execution process. The execution process began just before 10. A doctor gave Coleman a shot to sedate him, a second shot to slow his heart rate. He was then transferred from a holding cell 17 steps to the death chamber. Mr. Coleman came in uh, wearing a uh, non-denominational, we're told, uh, prayer shawl. When he walked in, he seemed quite confident. It happened quite fast. And he seemed to kind of adjust his shawl and then was did not need any kind of um, escorting onto the gurney. Coleman made a last statement, but he didn't use his own words. Instead, he quoted the 23rd Psalms. He uh, repeated, the, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and continued with that. And then um, it seemed like his chest heaved. He took a couple quick breaths, maybe probably about eight or nine. And then that's kind of when he just stopped. It was no big last breath. The execution process for inmate Alton Coleman has been completed. The official time of death, 10-13. Love us? Leave us a positive review or rating. Follow No Tears for Black Girls on social media and No Tears for BG on Twitter. Be blessed. Be loved. Stay safe.